castinglightpodcast.com we tweet at podcasting light and you can find us on facebook at casting light podcast i'm your host jason Marin, and my co-host today is matt gordon hey jay hi matt for this show our guest is the inimitable fred bach wow really yeah inimitable inimitable. okay i don't know about that but is well i got shit for saying fabulous really in in a a review so i can't say that anymore oh i'd like to be fabulous Matt, are you fabulous? Our guest this time is Fred Bach. <laughs> Welcome, Fred. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm okay. Good. And uh, my co-host today is, I believe, already known to you. That would be one Matt Gordon. Hey, uh, guys. I'm familiar. Uh, tell me how you all know each other. Matt has assisted for me. I, I met him through uh, Fairy Lighting Design, which is a design firm I work with. And now Matt is a part of as well. Um, yeah, and that's kind of how I met him. And we started doing work together, and the rest is history. Is that yeah. accurate? It's been a lot of fun. That's pretty accurate. Good. Yeah. Remember, he saved me from a burning building, but he owes me $20, so. You're never going to see it. I know. All right. Well, welcome, Matt. Now, Fred, as I understand it, your design career has been quite long and storied. Well, I don't know. Well, my life is long and storied. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've been designing, gosh, about 25, 30 years. Oh, my God. So, Yeah. I guess and it I has that, been long and storied. That started in Michigan, right? Yeah, started in Michigan. I mean, I, you know, obviously, like everyone else, started doing stuff in theater in high school, and then you go from there. And you, I'm, I double majored in college in uh, both theater and then TV, radio, and film. Just in case I couldn't make it in theater, hopefully the TV, radio, film part could, something could work out. And that's ultimately what happened. And lo, these many years later, you're associated with Jimmy Fallon, you're associated with Christmas and Rock Center, the NBC Primetime Upfronts. Yes, a ton of other stuff at 30 Rock, Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Yep. Uh, what else? Uh, well, obviously, like stuff like with FLDA, we've done what, CNBC, uh, stuff with ESPN. Uh, NBC Sports. NBC Sports. Uh, a little show that was on the Speed Network called Fast Track to Fame. Uh, a whole bunch of different things. Awesome. What do you want to talk about? I I don't know. You brought me here. Matt, what, right. do, what do we want to talk about? If you could, if you could take us through the entire design process of the new Tonight Show. Okay. And then sort of how it works on a day-to-day basis, because you're also the lighting director on that Yes, show. I am. Um, well, the design process is sort of, there's not a lot of communication in the beginning. Basically, it was myself and production designer Peter Barron sort of starting the whole thing off. Uh, saw Peter's model, uh, but actually also another person who was very involved in bringing me on board to do the show was uh, someone who really is inimitable, Phil Himes, who is a television lighting legend. Um, you, If you've watched Saturday Night Live, a little show called Saturday Night Live, he's basically been there from the beginning. I mean, he's been working at NBC as a lighting designer in television since the 50s. Um, he came up in our previous episode with Mike Baldessari. Yeah, good, good. Uh, but, and Phil uh, called me up because I'd worked with Phil um, – I've done like some Saturday Night Live with him, but also you know, he knew my work from Conan O'Brien because he was consulting on that as well. I mean, he just sort of oversees all, anything Lauren Michaels is involved with at NBC, uh, Phil is involved with. Uh, and so about what, now almost two years ago, Phil called me to see if I'd be interested in, in lighting and designing The Tonight Show. Of course, I, how would you turn that down? Um, bringing it back to New York and all of that was really kind of a cool idea. And started on that. And so, obviously, there's a lot of talking with Phil over, oh, just basic design ideas and also you know, just sort of how he sort of saw the show running and getting a lot of insight into Jimmy Fallon from Phil. And Phil is very close with Jimmy. Uh, Phil is pretty much close with almost everyone in that building. He really is. Uh, he's, he's quite a character. And he's, his energy for someone who is 91 years old is incredible. Uh, and he's still sharp. He's still relevant. Uh, you know, the, the little details, they, he really doesn't bother with them much, but unless he has to. But for the most part, I mean, he is just, he's still a very vital part of, of SNL and then pretty much anything Lauren Michaels is involved with at NBC. 
Um, so there was a lot of conversation with him. And then seeing what Peter Barron was deciding for the set, and a lot of it was they, they basically wanted to keep everything nice and high and, you know, no real no lights in the shots at all for, you know, big wide sweeping shots and everything else. So you know, that, of course, meant a lot of Lico's and, you know, just sort of a long throw kind of idea to make the show work, which is something that's uh, was a bit of a challenge to negotiate initially just because it, it TV talk show can go anywhere and do anything. So you just sort of have to be ready for that. And that really changes to... the sort of setup because I know in a lot of cases people are sticking down three and four lights in essentially the same position, just one below the other, below the other, below the other. Yeah, that, that can happen. And so, you know, but for us it wasn't that at all. And we just have pretty much taken more of a, a theatrical approach to it. Uh, but, you know, keeping the television aesthetic uh, in mind at all times. And, you know, then with the show, I mean, again, I've, I've got the experience from doing Conan for all those years because all these shows basically the format is the same host comes out he does a monologue he's got a band he goes over to home base does a little desk piece of some sort then maybe it's another desk piece in the second act or it's the first guest comes out and then you know then it's another guest and then it's music and then some other comedy and in Jimmy's case it's usually a guest some sort of game with the guest for another act then the second guest then music then good nights and we're done so there's a certain pattern to it all um you know with all of that too there's you know so they so at that point it's just sort of laying out the room and, and what's going to happen in the space you know because you've also got to make sure you've got the audience lit uh you've got to make sure you've got some sort of um, performance area for the bands and some sort of big general production area for all of the games and just having sort of just enough lights standing by in Hopefully, where where you've put them will be in convenient places, so you're not rehanging a lot, just doing a lot of refocusing for either the this you know some of the sketches and some of the games which are pretty broad. To you know, like tonight we did a pre-tape with uh, Ryan Reynolds and we did Aggression Roulette, which uh, becomes something where it's a very specific you know basically two Legos, one on Jimmy, one on Ryan, single key kind of idea, that kind of game with a lot of mood. And Shot. all these things happen in that same. Oh, yeah. General production area. Yeah, exactly. So, and then that's the other thing, too. I mean, that's where they, again, this, all the studios at NBC, except for 8H, are all pretty small. I mean, they were all sort of developed first for radio, television second. You know, they're it all. It is called Radio City. It is. And they're all very tiny. They're tiny by a lot of other standards, especially by like LA standards, where there's a lot more real estate. So then the design process becomes, you know, then it's looking at the scenery and seeing how we treat the scenery, light the scenery, to make the whole room work. And we took a bit of an architectural approach with that as well. Uh, so th those are kind of the, the thoughts going through my mind. While getting that going, uh, I had also worked on the Today Show redesign, which happened about a year and a half ago, I guess, two years ago. And with that, we had such success, uh, Matt, myself, Bruce Ferry, we had such success with that with... Um, going all LED and success with NBC Sports at that point as well, that I was approached to see if I could handle doing The Tonight Show all LED. And, you know, so then that, that also just sort of played into it. You know, it doesn't really matter what the fixture is. It's just, you know, how you approach it and then using the, the proper tools. And so you just tested a lot of LED Lecos, looked at a lot of LED Fresnels, and had to go with things that I had to do a fairly long throw um, by tele by some television standards, another like, typical. Like what, what numbers are we talking about? Uh, about twenty feet, twenty eight, twenty five feet. So you know, you're again. There's a, sort of the old school TV approach was a ring of soft lights, and then Fresnels kind of hung low at the right angle to kind of come in. And the reason why all that stuff ended up being closer is just to help mitigate a lot of the spill that you would get. Because you, have, you don't have as much control with Fresnels and with soft lights. So you kind of had to play everything in a little closer to keep it out of the other areas. The, the problem with going with that kind of approach is the big wide shots are lost. And we do a ton of them. We've got two rail cams that go up and down both sides of the studio. So, and we're, we kind of shoot and do a lot of tracking shots from those grid cams and just other kind of nice shots. And no one really wanted to see any of the hardware. So the, all of those things kind of come into the approach. But basically it's you've got your home base, which has a desk, and you've got a production area where you're doing stuff. You've got to light the house band, which for Jimmy it's the roots, and then and it's coming awesome. up. Yes, they are. They're, they're a great band. I mean, those guys are great. They're amazing. 
And then from there, just some sort of music production area. That too, you've got to figure out a, a fairly flexible rig that you're not, you really don't change much of it during the course of the week, if ever. You know, you may do sm some small changes. I'm doing some small changes to it in the next week or two, but they're all very, they're more evolutionary changes, not big sweeping changes. Because the set is essentially staying the same, and so it, it's the same, it becomes the same pro the thought process in what you do. Uh, so th that's kind of where the conversation started for the show. Obviously, it's you watch the show, you know, watch at that point late night, which for Jimmy was sort of the blueprint for what he was going to do with The Tonight Show. Um, he was very successful with that, so you're not going to change it much. The biggest change, ultimately, I think, in the way the show is run and what they do is they would they used to do a lot of games with uh, the studio audience themselves. They pull in a lot of studio audience, where now it's just with the guests that are on the show. So, you know, all of that's a big part of it. And also, it's, Jimmy does a, a lot of performances as well, some music-based and other things. So you got to be ready for all of that as well within the production area. Yeah, and that's where it all starts. So, you know, you lay it out, you know, work with the production designer. You know, we went through just looking at samples of scenery, that type of stuff, because the other part of it with that particular show was they wanted the acoustics and the sound in the room, which was very important to Jimmy, to be just right. So that meant um, using a constellation system from Myers, which kind of gives you all sorts of feedback, and you can kind of simulate any sort of acoustical environment within that system. It's you know deals with a lot of you know microphones placed all over the room, plus speakers just to deal with that and to help create. You could create a concert hall feeling. You can create a very intimate feeling and a very dead feeling. It's kind of really cool. I mean, kind of go all all over the place with it. Or it could be something where I'm at one end of the studio and you're at the other at another end of the studio, maybe 75 feet away, and I can just talk in a very slow voice, in a low voice, and you would hear everything just because of the way the speakers are set up. It's and that, really, and that's just for the audience's benefit. Um, it's some for the audience benefit, but for Jimmy's benefit as well. Because again, it's it's that feedback all over the room, and it's also really for Jimmy to get the audience feedback. I see. Yeah, you know, because again, the other thing that's very important with with you know these type of shows is the feedback from the audience, you know, the the studio audience. That is is crucial because that really kind of lets the performers know what's working, what's not working. Uh, as Steve Higgins, our announcer, always says to the audience during warm up, they're like they're the soundtrack for the show, and and it truly is the case. I mean, they're filling in a lot of the dead air. When they laugh or they react, it, it really just kind of fills in the room a lot and just kind of adds subtle little details to everything. It really just sort of shapes the whole show, I feel. Um, you know, if you look at the two live theatrical productions that were done on NBC, you know, Sound of, Mu Sound of Music and Peter Pan, I, I think one of the things both of those lacked was a, an audience because you, you lose that sort of feedback, it's, which it's is so surprising that yeah. they didn't. Especially in those cases, those are musicals that were written to be performed in front of an audience. Right. And so when they were performing the thing, they both kind of sort of bothered me. There's something about them that both of them incredibly ambitious undertakings. They don't, don't take anything away from what was accomplished and what was achieved artistically on, on any level. But the, the thing that was sort of bothering me about both of them, and it took me a while to figure it out, was the fact that there was no feedback from the audience. And that, that really doesn't help the performers out because, again, even with a, a live you know, theatrical production, there's so much give and take that you get from the audience and all the energy you get from them. So it just sort of felt to me like, in both cases, they were just very, very highly produced rehearsals. So, again, the audience feedback becomes huge in the show. And you, you, I have to keep that in mind, too, as, as we're doing everything we're doing. Because, again, Jimmy can go into the audience. We do some bits with the audience. Uh, Jimmy always runs up through the audience at the end of the night. So... That's got to be lit nicely, and we go through all of that. But again, we were also just dealing with trying to keep everything high and out of the way. Because the grid height is about 18 feet in the studio. They, studio yeah. they, they stripped that studio down before load-in, right? Oh, yeah. It was stripped way down. And we also moved, they, we moved a structural column out of the room. So they had to put in these gigantic I-beams just to support the studio above it, which is uh, Studio 8G, which is where they're doing Seth Meyers. And that was also a big part of the acoustics, was to sort of do as much sound dampening and deadening as they could because while we were doing our show, and again with the Roots or with whatever band we have on the show, they, they can be very loud, that that didn't interfere with that point audience load in, warm up, and maybe the beginning of Seth's show. So all of those things were going on because all these studios are literally right on top of each other. In that rebuild of the room, did you get a chance to have any input in what was going to go in um, as far as infrastructure for lighting? 
especially mm-hmm. going full LED in a room that's so old. Well, but the the um, the room while the room itself was old and the building is is old and also historic, uh, the infrastructure that was already in the room was fairly new. You know, within maybe ten fifteen years. Uh, again, they were all you know. It was, I mean, there's over seven. There were seven hundred. I think it's seven to eight hundred two point four K dimmers. So you had you know you had raceways. You had circuits for days. Obviously, we're not using hardly any of that. I mean, I, from what Jimmy's old show was going LED to the new show, um, as a comparison, we're down about seventy five percent in power consumption. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So again, at that point, it's just putting in relays wherever we needed to put in relays and just swap cards out. So there really wasn't much for me to discuss about the infrastructure. Really, at that point, the only thing that I, I had something to do with and consulted on was, you know, where the follow spot bridge went. But even that, we were sort of, with other beams and other hardware in, in, in the ceiling and the structure itself, it, it could only go to us at a certain point, and that was it. And then hopefully they didn't move the monologue mark any steeper or closer to make the, the follow spot steeper, which would have meant trying to drop the, the bridge in a little lower but again, that would defeat the purpose of just trying to keep it a, be a very wide open room. Right. So, and, and that was the other thing too with everything. It's not, not only am I working with at that point in the process, the production designer, but also the sound designer, because there are speakers on speakers on speakers in that room for not only feedback, for confidence, uh, and everything else that you just kind of need for a television show. It's really well decked out. But so that meant this is a constant dance between where lights go and where speakers go. And then where television monitors go for the audience to watch the show. There's a lot of little things to work around. A lot of obstacles. So you, you do all, we get all that done. You know, plots are done. You, we all work on it. We all talk about it. It goes from there. It's the same process that it always is. And from there, it's camera block. You do rehearsals. And then we just basically just start doing the show. And the show itself, um, the day always starts off with music, when we have music. And for me, that maybe starts the day before or two days before if we discuss the ground plan and, and how it's all being laid out. And then from there, you know, I listen to the music a lot. I do a little deck plot with whatever I'm adding. I've got a, a nice little handful of lights I can throw on the, on the deck. Uh, and then from there, you know, work with my programmer. We discuss what we want to do. Sometimes the band will bring an LD. We work with the band's LD as well. Uh, to you know, make it the best performance possible for you know both our audience and for the performer. You know, some performers it's very important what the lighting design is, and they want to sort of keep it cohesive with you know, what they're doing on the road at that point. Uh, others, you know, you get total free reign. And it's it's always working with the band's LD to help give them a television aesthetic and, and kind of bring them into our world, which you know we've got a bit of an aesthetic as well. So you you kind of want to make it feel like it's although you want to respect the artist and whatever their wishes are, that you still sort of, that everyone knows that that performance is happening on The Tonight Show. And that's very important for Lauren Michaels, that we've branded our performances. Does band input generally, is it generally like uh, cueing and color? Uh, and and you're handling It the... can be cueing, color, it could be, you know, oh, you know, sidelight artist day. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, they don't like any light at all. Well, you have some light. Uh, it, and it oh, I guess be, Kanye uh, was on the show. What's that? Kanye was on the show? Uh, no, Kanye, Kanye wasn't on our show, He, no. but he just did SNL and, and he just wreaked all sorts of um, havoc with a couple different ideas he had. Does not like front line. Forth. <laughs> no. And, the, and, and so, <laughs> and he really, because he was on the SNL 40th. And so that's where they had that giant cloud, basically, uh. which was, you know, just, just giant floating rig with a, just a ton of Kino flows in it. So it was just that sort of looming ominously over him, and then a, a video wall which just basically had a white background, nice. and that went back and forth with that. Which it was it was a cool performance, but you know that so that happened. So it, it can be any number of things. And again, we've had a varied number of performers, and we had Barbara Streisand on. It was her first uh, Tonight Show appearance actually in 50 years. Uh, no pressure there. <laughs> and and you know and she's very specific in what she wants. Um, you also have some freedom and she's definitely a, a performer that has got very strong opinions, wants to look a certain way and you're dealing with her whole team as well to make, and they're, which, they're all there to help protect what she wants and, you know, so, and then you're, you're dealing a lot more with makeup and hair so the artist can just perform and do what they want to do and they, they've got their people that, that will work with the Tonight Show staff 
to make it a great experience for all concerned. And yes, and then we just do that. So then we have music rehearsal, we pre-program, then the band comes out, we do camera blocking, sound check, that's over, and then we strike the band. Then from there, we do whatever other bits come up. So we'll rehearse sometimes, and sometimes we'll rehearse something for two days down the road if we can. Some of the, the games can be very complicated, and they're, they're still trying to work them out and workshop the game itself out. Uh, like we did a game once, uh, pool bowling. So we had a giant billiards table in the middle of the studio that, that people could walk on, and they were basically using bowling balls as uh, pool balls. Awesome. So and, and so that kind of thing happens. So they, can, they the games can be gigantic, and we, we do another game, Pop Quiz, that's the name of it. So you've got basically Jimmy and the guest. They're in these chairs that kind of ratchet up. If they answer the question wrong, they ratchet up more, and they've got these giant dunce caps on <laughs> with basically a big point on the top. And then looming over them is a water balloon on, on, over each of them. So obviously, if you answer something wrong, you go up higher and higher until finally you pop the balloon. So we, we, this show can get very messy. Uh, and you know, so a lot of that happens as well, a lot of advancing of the games, just to even figure out if it works, how it works, and if there's some mess involved, especially like with water, you know, how water gets cleaned up so we can keep the show moving along. Because we try to keep it fairly close to live. And, and that's kind of it. And that's sort of the show. And then, you know, we do the show. Well, actually, what Jimmy does is he'll do a monologue rehearsal with a small audience. So they can sort of just start testing out some of the jokes. If we've got a tape piece, we may show the audience that. Whatever the desk piece is, Jimmy will do that in front of the audience. Uh, any number of things. Sometimes we do sketches. Like, ew is always done in front of the monologue audience. And any of the other sort of like little weird odd pre-tapes that we do will always be done in front of that audience because, again, for Jimmy, it's the audience feedback is very important. I mean, I've worked on other shows where it's not quite as important or, or just because of the economy of time, you don't have that kind of time to, to mm-hmm. do everything in front of an audience. But, again, Jimmy is so performance-oriented. The audience component is critical. So what were some of the uh, challenges and solutions doing an all-LED system for a show like this? I know you've used LEDs extensively. Was yeah. this the first all-LED show that you've done? No. I, NBC Sports was, I think, the first big one that we all sort of got, cut our teeth on. The first full studio. Yeah. yeah. First, you know, full rig. Then the Today Show was the next one uh, that I had worked on. And you learn a lot from there, you know, even just as far as organization. Everything becomes more complex because every light, you've got power and data going to each light. And you can daisy chain lights, and a lot of times you're going to do that just because you're not going to put relays all over the place. Uh, and so you've got to basically manage the, the data chain, the power chain for you know each fixture. And so there's a lot more thought that has to go into everything in, in pre-planning. It's not, you know, the old days was, oh, you hang a light, plug it into a circuit, let the board op know what the circuit is, the system know what the circuit is so we can keep the hookup going. And all that's sort of done in a very random fashion in television, where now it's, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, there's so much more planning you have to do in, into the whole structure of, of the design and of, of every fixture. Fixture types were important because, you know, Jimmy is very analog <laughs> in his thinking. So if I was going to go all LED, I had to find a fixture that would give me as close to a homogenized beam as possible, which that led to going down to Prism at that mm-hmm. point. Because Jimmy didn't want to see the little chiclets of the red, green, blue, amber. He, he wanted to see just Yeah, the I don't think Jimmy would have would have liked that. In retrospect, that was the right way to go, was to go with a homogenized field. That led to yeah, that, that particular thought process at the time. Again, that now we're going back two years. The technology and the manufacturers are all jumping over each other leaps and bounds every day. So fixture types I chose two years ago... I may not choose today, you know. And again, you'd have to vet everything again to to make all the decisions you need to make. You, you can only use what the market is giving you. And if you know if someone comes out with something better two months later, it's sort of on them, you know. Exactly. And then that's kind of that's how you go about it at that point. The mo- that was the most important thing to me as far as fixture selections. And also, I needed a punchy Fresnel because I was going to use a Fresnel as a soft light. Now, of course, there's so much more with remote phosphor technology. Maybe I would have gone, you know, another route with more remote phosphor type fixtures, soft fixtures. Uh, you know, so, you know, that takes you down like the Cineo path or, you know, I'm sure there are others out there, but Cineo comes to mind right now. 
So, but again, with that, you still then run into the control issues of controlling the fixture if you're backing it off 10, 15, 20 feet. So, in, again, and by control, you know, that would be barn doors, flags, teasers, whatever, just to help keep light and spill off the set. And the set itself, we treated very, because we built literally right to the walls. I mean, the set is almost bolted right to the walls of the studio. So that led to looking at a lot of architectural fixtures to do wall washing and, and stuff like that, because there's a lot of texture to the walls as it is. The, and of course, the set goes through its, its evolution and genesis, even as you're doing test shows. So at one point, there was, everything was wood and almost all the same tone and color of wood. So that all had to be sort of dealt with on some level. Of course, then you bring in a, a Duratrans, a Skyline, which they were fighting because we also have all these like little models of buildings that between Peter Barron and Eugene Lee, because Eugene Lee was the ultimate production designer on it with Peter under him as I was under Phil, uh, Peter was under Eugene. And it just kind of went through that process. And that also, through all of that, in looking at the set and, and how we had to build lights into the set, it was going to the, the scene shop a lot to see how the progress was going and figure out how we could do things. Also, to do more hiding of fixtures and, and other things, especially like for backlights, a lot of beam benders were used on this set. Oh, this show. So it was a real unorthodox for television approach. But, you know, again, you have to look at w- what tools are available to solve the the challenges and the problems that you've got to solve. And you move on from there. So you've never been constrained by the concept that certain fixtures are for television, certain fixtures are for theater, certain fixtures are for film? No, not at all. It's really becomes certain fixtures are for a longer throw, certain fixtures are for a shorter throw, certain fixtures are softer uh, and more forgiving. And, you, and those are really the, the way I look at it. You know, they're all tools. And I'll say in the years that I've worked with you and Bruce, it's not very often that we use quote-unquote traditional television fixtures right. in, in the studios that we do. Yeah. And we've been using mostly Lico's. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because there was sort of a, a time for a lot of, I think, television designers where, again, you were doing the typical Fresnel soft light approach. And I think a lot of people almost, almost at the same time, it seems, started going more and more towards Lico's. Again, the Source 4 is such a great Lico that that would made it a lot easier to do. It's certainly a lot easier and more forgiving to use a Source 4 on talent than it would be a, a 6x9. All these little technological advances enabled us to make these fixture choices. And again, with a lot of the television that I've worked on with Matt, most of it is, is very static on some level. It's a, an anchor at a desk, or you know, it's a bunch of people sitting in chairs in an interview. With The Tonight Show, it, it's a much more dynamic show. People could get up in any second. People could be getting up and we could go right into a music number or they could go right into a game or they could just literally run out of the studio, go someplace else. You need the control, and especially in the small spaces that we're in, to keep light off the set because the set also is a lot closer to talent than I would like. So then you're really trying to find ways to just to help control that so you can still like the scenery and have you know give that its own shape and dimension as well. So what are the differences? You know, you said the nighttime talk shows are all similar. Yeah. What are the differences between, or what was the progression, let's say, from Letterman to Conan to Fallon? Well, again, while the shows, you know, guy does a monologue or gal, and they have a desk, they talk to a couple of people, they've got a band. What makes all the shows different, ultimately, is the hosts themselves, the personalities. The, the show David Letterman does is very different from what Jimmy does and versus you know what, what Conan does. And, of course, if you look back on when Letterman started, obviously he was borrowing from all those that came before him. But he was also doing things that, you know, now you can just find people doing on YouTube, goofy stunts, whatever. With the, the difference, ultimately, between uh, Jimmy Fallon and Conan O'Brien, I, I can just put it very succinctly. Uh, Conan is a writer who performs, ultimately, and uh, Jimmy is a performer who writes. And that right there is the big difference. Which isn't to say Jimmy isn't. Conan is very involved in the editing process. Uh, in, in working with Conan... For all the years I did, it was always amazing to watch Conan, the rehearsal process, just edit and, and work on whatever sketches we were doing, whatever bits we were doing, to really and sometimes change them completely. He's a, an amazing editor. 
an incredible editor, and he knows comedy. I mean, just knows it. Knows, knows the structure of it, knows how to make it work. Where with Jimmy, he's not necessarily involved in the micromanagement of, you know, the editing process of, of what, you know, what he can do to make something work. Jimmy basically just does it by his personality and, and the power of that personality. And the fact that he's an incredible musician, and all, these are all natural talents of his. I mean, he's great at impressions, and he's just a, an amazing performer. And again, a lot of that comes from his SNL experience. Uh, how does that uh, reflect in the, the way the show is structured for you? It really, not much different. There's some differences, but they're, they're, at that point, they're so minor and subtle. It really doesn't, it doesn't factor into anything. Because again, it's monologue. Yeah, go to the desk. There's a desk piece of some sort. Uh, then from there, bring out the first guest. Then there's some sort of com- another comedy element, typically, to break up the between the guests or games in, in Jimmy's case. And then you bring out the next guest. And then from there, you do an act with music, good nights, and you're done. Uh, from, from having worked with, I mean, I haven't worked with you much, but from having yeah. worked with you a bit, it's sort of shocking how sort of deeply you know television lighting and how things are going to appear on camera without and even if you don't have a camera available you you know what you're going to get yeah how did you start to learn all that and and how did you you know sort of how did you assemble this knowledge you have now well you know that all just again that comes in so many different ways um starting off you know i would work on a lot of single camera industrial type stuff so and then you're working with uh, other dps and you kind of learn what they do and how things work on camera. And you, so you sort of get that knowledge and you see that. And then you go from there and then you start doing your own stuff. And it's all by trial and error or having other people tell you that looks, that looks awful. We need to rethink this. And then you just watch television. You know, I, I can't stress enough. If you want to work in television, you have to watch it or whatever screen it is. If you want to be a, a programmer, you, you've got to watch all the music shows. You've got to watch all the music performances on all the on all the talk shows on SNL. Um, watch the Grammys. If you want to do like big award shows, well, you better watch all the award shows just to sort of just see the structure and and then how those shows are done. Because there's also still with all of that as well, it's a very basic structure. The host of the event comes out, does a monologue. There's some sort of big performance, and from there you're going into presenters presenting awards, cutting to the audience. A winner is announced, winner goes up the aisle, gets the award, does a speech. You do it again and again. And a lot of that stuff becomes very repetitious. So you, you spend a lot of time watching television and just trying to figure out how everyone else is doing it. And you, you learn a lot from that. I mean, I'm sure Matt, being much younger than me, Matt's about 12. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that's what you, the process you're going through. And you go through a lot. Certainly. I mean, a lot of this stuff I watch with no volume because I could care less about the actual content of it, but you watch the aesthetic and, like you said, what the structure of it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Doing it that way, I mean, okay, you can watch the volume off, but I, I think at a certain point you got to start turning the volume up because the other part of it is, as lighting designers, part of what we're there to do is help support all the rest of the content. Oh, sure. So it's, it's good to then find out where the laughs are because sometimes – you have to tailor, especially in comedy, you've got to tailor what it is to where the laughs are coming. Sometimes. It all depends on what it is. Because what you don't want to do is take a cue too early or too late where that will distract the audience from whatever is going on. Because, again, if performer doesn't hear a laugh when they're expecting one, they will figure out and try and find every reason why they didn't get it. Because, again, they need that feedback. It's a very odd existence. Letterman has talked about that many times in many interviews. You know, he only truly feels alive when he's doing the show. So you, you're, you're constantly looking for that feedback because that's also the only way you know what's going to work for hopefully for the audience at home. Uh, and that's how you, you, you build it all. So all those things become very important to the whole structure of it. And also the other thing with, with all of those shows is lighting cue cards, which is something that is so important on performance-based shows, especially anything that Lauren Michaels produces. He believes in the power of cue cards. And I get it, and I do too. Because, again, you've got someone else you're working with. It's not just something that just scrolls by. Because something that just scrolls by, an operator in another room, 
can't get any of the visual cues the same way as being in the room with the performer. I mean, that becomes a whole other way of working. And also typically because most teleprompters are mounted on cameras because the whole function of it is for the news anchor to be delivering information right into the lens and being able to read that information. So it just feels the illusion is that he or she is delivering information pretty much off the top of their head. But performance-based, sometimes the cards are nowhere near where the camera is because of, of eye lines. I mean, SNL, for sure, that's how it all works. And you, you learn. I mean, I, once on Conan, I ended up uh, in, a, in a sketch and had to read cue cards. What you learn from that whole experience is you never look at the other performer. You know, theater, it's a very give-and-take thing. Uh, film can be very give-and-take if you're lucky enough to have the performer there as well, even when you're doing your close-ups and, and performing with that person. In that kind of sketch comedy, you just read the cue cards. Because if you try to make eye contact with the, the other performer maybe you're doing a scene with, what happens is you just lose your place. So it's, you really are performing to the cue card guy or gal at that point. They're very good at, at understanding timing. You know, they become very good at it. And it's, it's, a, it's a incredibly, it seems like a very silly job. Uh, and a very easy job for people to do. Oh, not maybe. at all. I mean, I've but done a, it's I've done incredible. A, I've done a few things with cue cards, a yeah. couple of SNL digital shorts, actually. Mm-hmm. And right. the difference is is huge. Yeah. And just it feels better. Just watching exactly. it, look, it looks more right. Right. And so yeah, all of that stuff kind of comes into play. I mean, all those shows, I mean, especially SNL, SNL is nothing but a big ballet. It really is. The scenery comes in. Performers are getting pulled off the stage by wardrobe so they can get the next wig on and the next costume on because that becomes very extensive on that show. So, and again, it's it's live. It's it's live, live, live. I mean, it, it always amazes me how many people don't understand what that means until, you know, a lot of times until they see the show performed. It's always been done that way and always should be done that way. Obviously now they do a lot more tape and digital short type things and stuff like that. Which you know speaks to the changing times and tastes, but you still need that live component. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I know you also like the NBC upfront. Yeah, I've I've done it a few times. Uh, I didn't do the last one. Did it twice in the Hilton Ballroom and then twice at Radio City. Last so, time it was at the Javits, and it was a whole other group doing it, so I wasn't involved. And I was plenty busy with just still trying to get the Tonight Show off the ground. So how is that similar? How is that different? Well, th- that the upfronts are structured more like. Award shows. Okay? So there, obviously there's some sort of monologue that someone's doing. There's some sort of host. And then from there, it's going to podiums, doing a lot of sales talk, maybe describing the schedule. And then it's going to tape. Lights out for tape. Lights up. The next spiel happens. Lights down. Tape. And lights up. And then that, that really becomes the whole flow of that type of a show. And then for all of those upfronts, there's another cue structure that comes in depending on how the upfront itself has been structured. Uh, the first two I did with uh, for NBC, everything was definitely driven by the schedule. So it was each day. They would go through each day, and then each day had its own color, you know, based on one of the feathers of the peacock. So and then so th- that kind of informed how we cued and built the show. Uh, then the last, then the first one I did at Radio City was very performance based. That was you know when uh, NBC was doing Smash. And they were just trying to make it more old time upfront. Because for a few years before I got involved with the upfront, they were doing other non traditional upfronts. Because again, the media landscape is changing. It comes down to maybe the old way of presenting the information to all the ad buyers, et cetera, uh, needed to change as well. And then, then, of course, the more you change it, then the less it, it feels like you're doing a network upfront. And then it, everything kind of shifts back. You, know, you have to find that that those critical elements that make it still be an upfront, right? Without and leave those, but then you can change the other elements. But sure. I know there's some little bit of trial and error in figuring out what those elements are. Yep. And yeah, you know, and again, the thing about doing an upfront is it's probably for for any network, it's the most important show they do. That's basically where they get their money, that no one ever sees except the people in the room and. Then you're dealing with a lot of executives that are become very nervous because that's really where they put their best foot forward so they can then hopefully do as much of the upfront ad sales as they can so they can pretty much you know sell their inventory and everyone keeps their jobs and gets paid. 
And I know it's, it's, it's as important for the broadcast as it is for the people that are in the room well, with the executives. Sure. Well, because, again, it's what they do with it is a lot of times it, it just gets beamed via satellite, closed circuit. Obviously, it goes back to the all the network headquarters. But then it also goes to ad agencies in Detroit, ad agencies in Chicago, ad agencies in L.A., and maybe Dallas or something. And what, what about Christmas at Radio City? Doing a show in Radio City is awesome. I mean, the first time you walk on that stage, and, and Matt assisted me on the upfront, it's, it's, a, it's a thrill. It really is. It's, uh, to me, it's the best venue to work at in, in New York. And you really kind of feel, you, you get a shiver the first time you go in there and work because it is so bloody big. And it, it does have a it's history. It's big for New York. Yeah. <laughs> Very big for New York. And, and also its history is so incredible. Everyone has seen, again, on television, you've seen like VMAs done there, other award shows. Uh, Tonys have been done from there. So everyone knows Radio City on some level. And so, again, it was sort of like the same time I, when I started doing Late Night, the first time I walked into Studio 6A, which was also where Letterman did Late Night. Um, so you, there's a certain rush to it because the bones of the studios are in all of those shows. So it's all very recognizable. It was the same thing the first time I worked in 8H and actually did Saturday Night Live. You you just feel the history and, and everything that you've known and seen, you know, is, is there. And it, it's, it's, it's a very surreal experience. I like, I like the camel room. Oh, at, uh, at Radio City? Yeah. All right. And, and also Radio City's got some of the best crews. Oh, my God. I yeah. love working with the crews at Radio City. Well, I mean, uh, a lot of them have just been there. Yeah, exactly. And they know the room, and they know the history, and they love to share the history. So it, it's, it just becomes a very, it's a, just a fun, it's a fun experience. And there's always a lot of pressure and everything else with, you know, just mounting whatever show you're doing and the pressures of the, of the deadline. But it you know, just becomes a really, to me, a fun experience. And, you know, I hope it was for you when you've worked there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Matt. I mean, it's a blast there. And honestly, one, one of the best tours I've ever got at Radio City was from one of the stagehands. Yeah. One of jealous. those guys that's just been there forever. Right. I mean, you saw, I think you even saw like the model, right? Of. Yeah, the original of the th- model. Yeah. To pitch the building. I mean, again, and the, the thing about Radio City, a lot of the technology for the turntables, the elevators, during World War II, it was all guarded because it was basically the same technology that the military was using for aircraft carriers, et cetera, et cetera. So just its history and the technology, it, it's, a, it's a unique place to work. Well, the steam curtain still works. Yeah. Have you ever seen, seen it turned on? No. I haven't either, but I've heard about it. We've talked a lot about the nuts and bolts of these things mm-hmm. and sort of like the sort of mechanics of it. Right. But on the pure design side, what do you use to find inspiration for these projects? What do you do to, to make that real? I think a lot of it starts with watching television. The function of a television lighting designer, ultimately, is to make sure there's enough light so the cameras can produce a nice image. That means a lot of different things for a lot of different types of television. The, the type of television that I do a lot of tends to be a little flatter lit because of of the various angles that need to be taken it's you can't add a lot of drama to music you can add a lot of drama and that's where you can have fun with side light steeper lights lighting from the floor up and those type of things but when you're dealing with this type of of television which you know really it's it's the same for news anchors on a certain level you've you've got to light the talent in a very flattering flattish but not super flat way so because they're conveying a lot of information in the case of comedy, it's also about the facial expressions. And so you just want to make sure that everything you're doing doesn't distract from that. So that's really the nuts and bolts of lighting the talent, which is ultimately the first thing you need to do and, and concern yourself with. Second thing you need to concern yourself with then is what is the scenery and how, how are you approaching the scenery? Because there, there are really two different things you're doing at the same time. And a lot of the inspiration you get sometimes comes from the renderings from the production designers. If they've done renderings, that gives you a lot of insight into what they're seeing so you can ask the questions you need to ask. That part of the job is you want to feature the set. The set is also a performer in a lot of these things. So it's, it's how do you present the set in the best light. On one level, it's very creative. On the other end, it, it's very dry and becomes more architectural, especially more, more so now. You know, a lot of times it used to be just putting breakup on scenery. But now the scenery itself is so dynamic because it's got video. Uh, there are a lot of LED light boxes. Everything can change color. Everything can go infinite ways. So it's become much more dynamic and interactive on some levels. Yet, on the other hand, it's become a lot more basic. The shapes have become a lot more basic. 
on that subject, in the case of set elements that have, because obviously any set elements that have LEDs in them, you're you're going to control. Right. But ones that have video elements in them. Right. Like, how do you work with those guys to make sure it all works together? Well, ultimately, you don't. Um, or what you do is you're just trying to make sure that you're mitigating the spill onto the onto those elements so that the video can do what it needs to do and is clear in a way that's you know not polluted by light. So that's sort of how you're interacting with it. But then again, you'll take cues if there are graphics and you're working with the rest of the lighting in the room to integrate whatever graphics are in the video elements with the rest of the room. Obviously, if the graphics are all blue, you're not going to do, you know, sort of deal with the rest of the room all red. Mm-hmm. For the most part, you're, you're going to find a way to support whatever the graphics are. What is it that you look for in assistance and, and what would you say to people that want to break into the business, or specifically the part of the business that you're in? Uh, well, you look for someone with a good attitude. Uh, I think that becomes first and foremost. You look for someone who's got good people skills because the assistant ends up dealing with almost everyone. Uh, and it's safe to assume that Matt has all these skills since he's, your, since he's been your assistant. Eh. Some of them. Uh, he's, he's a terrible people person. Uh, no, he's... He, Actually, he's a halfway decent people person when he's sober, but no, no, no. It's um, it, Matt's a very good assistant because he also he knows how to present himself in front of the client. He knows he has enough technical background so he can then work with with the gaffers and the electricians for the other part of it. Um, you also need someone that that can keep paperwork together because television is so fluid and so dynamic. Things change, so tracking all of that information becomes very critical. Especially and, now. With, yes, with LEDs. Know, LEDs is so much more information yeah. you have to keep track of. Well, everything has a channel and a relay it's plugged into and a start address and, and a, you know, a certain number of control channels. But also, because we're daisy-chaining both power and data, what the other two fixtures are on, the, on either side of it. So when you move something, how does that affect the rest of that chain? There's just so much information that has to be dealt with and tracked. Uh, so you, you also need uh, someone that, that's conscientious. I don't think a, an assistant necessarily needs to have a, a design aesthetic, but they just have to be able to manage the whole process uh, and understanding what those nuts and bolts are. If they have a design aesthetic, it, it can either work for them or against them, especially if, if the design aesthetic it runs counter to either A, the, the type of production it is, or um, the, the designer they're working with. So first and foremost, it's really more about keeping everything organized, helping keep the designer on track. Because, again, it, it all becomes about time. And so a good assistant helps find a way to keep everything moving along, letting the designer know what the next light is to focus as well, and just managing and just riding herd on that whole process. And it's the same in theater. It's, I think it's the same everywhere at that point. The person that does the greatest job of explaining it all is Anne McMills in her book. Which just came out. I mean, she really. I mean, it was just reading it uh, a couple weeks ago. Really want to have her on the show. You should because yeah. she's she's great. And um, and I worked with her. We we did um, the other thing that's gone on with the Tonight Show is we've done three remotes in our for before our first year was over. We just had our first anniversary. Um, before our first year was over, we took the show for a week of shows in Orlando, and we did a live show after the Super Bowl. Right out of this live show in the Super Bowl that followed that Monday, we were in L.A. doing a week of shows. And then we came right back from that, and we've been doing shows, and we've got show, we did show, we're doing shows for four weeks before we get another break. So there's, a, there's an intense amount of planning and trying to get that stuff going as well because I'm, I'm dealing so much with the day-to-day. You know, I also rely on other designers as well. Uh, Mick Smith has become a very big partner for me in, in working on those shows to help me get it all done because I, I just can't do it all because I'm so bogged down in the day-to-day of the show. So all of those things together just makes all of this so intense. And, you know, worked with Anne in L.A. on, uh, on The Tonight Show. She came in and helped out for a couple weeks. I see. She's, she's great. You should definitely have her on the show. I'd be happy to. If you're listening to this, Anne. And uh, how about for people who want to follow your path? Well, that's a grim thing. I don't know if I'd want to, I don't know if I'd suggest that to anyone, but no, if you want to follow the path, I, I don't think anyone has the same path. I mean, I certainly wouldn't follow my path because I think everyone just sort of falls into it. And it. It's a couple of things, right? It's luck, there's skill, there's attitude, and there's opportunity. So all of those things have to work out and you have to be facile enough and flexible enough to see 
the different paths you've got to you you have to go, and you, you're just making decisions. It all becomes binary on some level. It's yes or no, and you so all those things together work. I mean, again. I don't think anyone has one path. I, my path is certainly different from Matt's, and Matt is definitely up and coming, and more than up and coming, he's here in a lot of in many regards. Um, and but his path is much different than mine. Um, our paths are much different than yours. Yet we're all, you know, we've all accomplished something in in this. We're all we're all working professionals in a field we all hoped we could be working in, and we're all lucky enough to be working in it. Uh, so, but but it all boils down to right. It, I think it boils down to attitude. Skill, competence, showing up on time, uh, being a hard worker, an incredibly hard worker. You've got to work harder than anyone else around you. But none of that guarantees anything. Then you also have to be smart enough or not even smart enough, perceptive enough to see where where everything can possibly take you and what paths are open to you. Um, I never thought I was going to be a lighting designer. That wasn't my ultimate goal. I mean, ultimately, I would have wanted to have either performed or have been a director. But that didn't work out. And, and But with that, you then see other th- other avenues that open and, and what the possibilities are. You know, I mean, I was very, was very good in, in math and science and, and also had an artistic uh, background. So all those things, I mean, to me, it's the science and the art that makes lighting so very attractive to me. And I think it's very attractive for everyone because it really does combine all of that, uh, much more so than any of the other disciplines. So all of that, okay, so then... That took me down that path, uh, so doing theater. But then having the television background from my undergrad on helped with going, oh, my gosh, I can take all my tech theater experience and really apply that to television. Because a lot of it, a lot of the other students at that point that I was going to school with in undergrad had didn't have any clue on any of the technical aspects. They were so far behind because they didn't have any of the tech theater background. And so I was able to apply a lot of that. And then it, it all just kind of snowballs from there. And so I think if anyone really – if this is what they want to do for their lives or livelihood and profession and their passion, it's just staying open. It's working harder than everyone else, reading, reading, reading. I read so much. Uh, as a, and now, I mean, I'm going to sound old, but you, now you have the world on your phone. And it's, it's just always kind of keeping up on everything. And I still do. I mean, I still watch a lot of television just to see what's going on. I still keep up with whatever new you know equipment is coming out and – you just kind of keep all of that information going. You always keep keep current and, and with all of that. And then also, but again, like I said, it's it's the hard work. It's everything else everyone knows. It, none of that's a mystery, but sometimes it escapes people. And yeah, it, and then it's just seeing where the opportunities take you. And and all of that together, it still doesn't guarantee success because luck is the other part of it. I was incredibly lucky. Uh, you make your own luck to a certain extent, but then you have to you know. Okay, I guess if you want to follow my footsteps. Uh, if you're uh, somewhere in the Midwest or someplace else, you've got to move to a big media area, right? You've got to either move to ultimately Los Angeles, you've got to move to New York, you've got to move to Chicago because that's where it's all happening. And you've, you've got to be able to put yourself into situations and expose yourself to all the possibilities. So. It's a hell of an answer. I appreciate it. Yeah, I hope it made sense. It does. <laughs> I mean, would you agree, Matt? And, and Jason, you too. I mean, you're a podcaster by night and well, programmer mean, by day. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad you said that because it's because people have asked. They, you know, they see I'm the one guy that's behind the console instead of pushing all the gear into the theater or into the studio, and and they want to know how I did that. And it's sort of like, you know, here are the things I did, but I I, I don't know that this was this would work for you. It, it worked for me, right? And you know, I, I have to I have to admit, sort of, it, it's sort of not fair for me to ask that question of people like you, knowing that people have asked it of me, and I didn't really have a very good answer because it, I don't have the the path; I just have mine. And everything is you, you just kind of find it. You know, I'm sure you've done the same thing, I, Matt. I, absolutely. I mean, I definitely fell into television by accident and never saw myself going down that path, but it was presented and explored and ultimately panned out and I think my advice to, to anybody would be you know keep an open mind and be willing to explore any possibility that comes up um, I came from a school where I was specifically told that you are a lighting designer and not only are you a lighting designer you are a theatrical lighting designer and anything besides that is beneath you so it, it took a while to 
really understand that there are so many more possibilities out there other than theater and that are also much more lucrative if you're willing to explore them. Oh, absolutely. I, and speaking to that for a second, it, it also the how many more people ha- actually have access to your work? So, for example, the live show that we did for The Tonight Show after the Super Bowl, 10 million viewers? Okay, now, if you're a theatrical lighting designer, when do you think you'll get to the 10 millionth person in a seat yeah, right. to, to see your work? On, it, it just doesn't necessarily happen that way. So the, the, the fact that you can reach so many people, I think, becomes important because, again, we, we, all, we all got into the entertainment business on some level because we wanted to reach an audience. And so to me, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about television, that I, I get that chance. And I'm lucky enough to do things that on some level are still structured very theatrically, but to reach a tremendous number of people. You know, it's, man, it's funny that you mentioned the, you know, don't close yourself off. Because, I mean, you know, look at some of the, the greatest lighting designers in history. They didn't constrain themselves to one genre. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because, again, you've, I mean, I've done – I never thought I would have ever done party lighting, but I've done party lighting. Uh, party lighting pays pretty well. It does. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with it at all. And, you know, and, and again, you, you, at that point, you, you have to find a way to create your own artistic endeavor and, ex- and express yourself. We're still all dealing in a very commercial realm, so that you've always got to please the client. But hopefully what you can bring to it to please the client helps shape everything you do, and then hopefully that leads to other work. And, and that is the other part of it, too. Just always keep yourself open. If you think you're always going to – if you said, oh, gee, I'm going to be a television line designer. That's what I want to be. And you, and you, you <laughs> just go down that road. Well, then you, you're closing off yourself to the other possibilities that may be there that are like, oh, oh geez, I, you know, I'm, I, it's really hard for me to break into that. But I'm doing all this party stuff. Why don't I do more of it? And then that kind of takes you into a whole other world. And then from there, maybe you end up doing some lighting for a band that may be performing. And maybe that band becomes up and coming and they like your work. And then you end up going into concert lighting. You never know. The, the path is just, you just never know how you get to wherever you are. I mean, I don't think. I mean, I still, I mean, I, I pinch myself. I'm very lucky. I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky. I always wanted to work at 30 Rock. From the first time I watched Saturday Night Live, that to me was the place I wanted to be. And I've done it. I mean, I, and I don't, I couldn't even tell you how that all happened. I, I was incredibly lucky. Uh, and, but again, you, you work really hard as well. But it, to do what I'm doing, it, it, for me, in a lot of ways, is a dream come true. Launching The Tonight Show was a, such a rush, such a thrill. I mean, my gosh, it comes back to New York. It hadn't been in New York in, what, 30, 40 years or whatever it was. So to be able to do that is, was a thrill. I mean, that's, that's history. That's television history in the making. So, and that's, that becomes something that, you know, is, in a, I feel just incredibly lucky to be a part of, to help work on something like that. Uh, Matt has been incredibly involved with everything going on at Sports Center right now with ESPN and that, and everything that they do. And, and their ESPN is, definitely pushes the genre and the limits and what they do technically all to support the information that the sports network needs to do because again those things are all about information you know ESPN really is all about just giving out information and finding dynamic ways to get that information to its audience and luckily working with ESPN I'm sure with with you and with Bruce and Mick you you guys are able to push other boundaries because of it because they think outside the box and same with NBC sports channel and so you know all those things are great experiences Absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of touching on something that I was going to say before is going down a path and exploring other genres, even if it's a genre you didn't intend to work in, at the very least, it's going to be an experience. And it's going to be an experience that you can maybe even bring into the genre that you land in ultimately. Just explore. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, working – I've been extremely fortunate working with, with Bruce and – doing everything at ESPN and they're always willing to kind of push the boundary and looking for the the what's new and what's cool and you know what's the new toy out there I mean I'm sure everybody's seen Sports Center and it's big and flashy and way different than it was like, right it's a lot of fun it's cool thank you gentlemen oh, thank you but before you go Fred can you give me the where can people find information about you and FLDA online well there's FLDA.com all of our bios are there, and so that's where you can find a lot of information. Me, if you do a Google search, you'll find stuff. 
there are other Fred Box out there, so it's it's the one that does lighting. And then it really just you turn on television, you can watch well, NBC at eleven thirty every night. And what do you have running right now? What what shows? The the Tonight Show is is it really? I mean, it takes all of my time. Okay. Um, it's an all-consuming job right now, especially with all the remotes we've done. Um, and just coming back, I mean, we're all everyone that works on the show. We're all just bloody beat right now. I'm. I'm, I'll be glad I'm. Next week is the last week for a week, because I'm well past my uh, sell-by date. All right. Well, uh, you have a good week off after that. Thanks. Thank you so much, and have a good night. You too. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. And there you have it. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. We're so fortunate to have had both Matt and Fred on this episode. Big thanks to them both. Remember to check out Fred's work every night at 11.30 on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and on the web at flda.com. You can also find more information about the rest of the team at FLDA, including my co-host Matt. This has been the Casting Light Podcast, a production of Casting Light Incorporated. Thanks for downloading, thanks for listening, and have a good show.